Uh, but really glad that you're here to worship with us. Uh, we very simply just worship Jesus. So we do that in a number of ways. We do it by singing songs. That's why we sing, uh, that talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. We uh, worship by sitting under the taught word, the scriptures, uh, where we learn more about how Jesus is the center of uh, the story of redemption in the Bible. We also worship Jesus by uh, giving because Jesus was the most generous person who existed in giving us himself. Uh, so we're just, we're glad you're here. We do give in those small silver boxes in the back. If you're looking to give, if you're visiting new, not a member, not a regular attender, uh, not looking for cash from you, just uh, thrilled that you're here to, to join in and witness the work of God among us uh, as we worship him together. Wanted to give you guys just a, a couple uh, key announcements just with uh, Christmas Eve service. We're going to have a, a 9.15 and 11 a.m. Not PM. I didn't realize that I actually was going to have to clarify that, but I guess it is Christmas Eve on a Sunday. I will not be here at 11 PM. I will be at home. I will be sleeping probably, uh, but you're welcome to come if you would like to sit outside in the cold. Uh, but otherwise, please do not show up at 9.15 PM or 11 PM. Show up at the AM. Uh, and if I could encourage you, if you do not have young children, if you could try to graciously usher your way to the 11, uh, that would be a blessing, uh, just because we have no idea what to expect. We've never had to have two gatherings before, and uh, we're kind of trailblazing, so thanks for being gracious in that process. Yes, we love being trailblazers. And to uh, let you know specifically, Christmas Eve this year, we're going to be giving uh, every dollar that we receive on Christmas Eve through both services will go towards funding uh, the truck that we want to purchase purchase for Pastor Wilson. Pastor Wilson is the missionary that we support, church planner that we support in Haiti, and um, he's been doing a phenomenal work, and the axle in the truck that he had had for years broke a number of months ago, and it has greatly limited his ability to serve and minister and get to places where he, he pastors, which are very remote areas. So it's not easy just to kind of uh, take your car like you do head on the parkway or, or 17. He's got to go through swamps and rivers and, and uh, across mountains, and uh, so some places are seven hours away that he travels to serve uh, those people. So uh, we'd love to get it for him. I think the truck is probably going to cost around 30 grand, uh, but that's okay because that's really nothing uh, to give someone who's laboring like he is. Um, and so our hopes is to, is to do that for him. We looked at, just so you know, him purchasing one in like Florida and shipping it or purchasing it in Haiti. It just looks like it, it's probably best to purchase it in Haiti because once you tie in shipping costs, uh, it's pretty much the same. So um, if you guys still have questions or disagree, send me an email and I'll delete it, okay? So, uh, so anyways, no, I, I mean, I might. I don't know. That kind of came out. I, I didn't really. Exodus 6, Exodus 6, grab your Bibles. If you have one, go to Exodus 6. It's a, it's a cold morning. Look, I was out in the snow early, so I'm a little grumpy, okay? So uh, we all were chipping ice off our cars. So Exodus chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you're new, I want to know, we've been in a series called Advent. So here's what Advent is. Advent means the arrival of or uh, the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. So we're, we're remembering and celebrating that, that Jesus Christ came on Christmas morning and will come again uh, to take us home as his. And so um, it's it's good for us to focus our minds, center our hearts for about five weeks as we hit all the way to Christmas Eve. We've been looking at the different promises God makes in the Old Testament and how they're all kept in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. So it's so key and important that you understand this. If you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, a very simple way to understand your Bible is that the Old Testament are all God's promises made to his people. Uh, the Old Testament people uh, of Israel had longings, had desires, had hopes, had, had dreams for deliver to come and, and restore them and, and bring them back to God. And so we see that all those promises 
promises are kept in Jesus Christ in the New Testament and also available to us, those of us who trust in his name, Jew and Gentile. And so um, it's been fun looking at that. We're going to be in Exodus 6. We, locked, we looked at how Jesus is the better Adam the first week, how Jesus is the better Abraham last week. We're going to look at how, how Jesus is the better Moses this week. Um, and a lot of you guys are familiar with Moses, probably if you even uh, grew up in church. Oh, and I, I forgot real quick. Um, sorry. Uh, Time out. Uh, if you have a Grand Cherokee license plate NJ, it's a New Jersey license plate N65JHR, your lights are on, okay? All right, so I don't want you stranded. Okay, back to Exodus 6. N65JHR, Grand Cherokee. Just wait like five minutes so you don't feel awkward, okay? So uh, get up in like five minutes once we get rolling to the text. It's, it's okay, all right? It's a rare morning here at Cab. I don't know what's... Is it the air we're breathing? Okay, Exodus chapter 6. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Here's what we're going to see as you've been going through the Bible. It's an amazing picture that, that even though the, the story of God is a story of man's rebellion, glad rebellion against God and their sin, belittling his name, belittling his glory, want to steal, wanting to steal glory for ourselves, it's also a great picture of promise and blessing. And so we've been seeing that in, in the scriptures that God pursues us despite us. And so um, as we see that, most of the time, um, you and I, how we operate, right, if someone hurts you, betrays you, uh, says something negative about you, it's usually fight or flight, right? You either lean into that in aggression, you want to get revenge or flight, I'll just avoid that person altogether so I don't have to deal with the awkwardness. Uh, we see that God is a God that does not deal in fight or flight, but actually leans into us in love, in our sin, and reconciles us back to himself. Uh, it's a beautiful picture that we see um, in the scriptures of, of God doing that. We've been seeing that, that that's how God operates, and he does that through promises or covenants. Um, that's why we've been looking at promises made, promises kept. And I want you to remember what this shows you. It shows you God is supremely gracious, right? I mean, it shows you as we continue to read that God owes us nothing. And out of the gate in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, he could have said, fine, uh, destined to hell, there's no, going to be no promise, no deliverer, there's going to be no race, no hope, and I'm just going to move on with what I want to do and what pleases me most. And yet we see what pleases the heart of God is actually to take those in glad rebellion and restore them in relationship with himself. It's a beautiful picture. So uh, we want to see that God is loving and merciful and long-suffering and loyal and dependable and affectionate and pursues us. Uh, that's what you're going to see in God's promises uh, as we study this. So um, God made a promise to Adam, okay? If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. He made a promise saying, hey, there's someone that's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of Satan. Either you're going you're to uh, bite his heel, you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to ultimately crush your head. And we know that's the promise of Jesus Christ. He then comes to Abraham, this guy Abram at the time, whose wife was barren. They were old of age and uh, didn't believe they could have children. God makes this promise that through your line, even though the circumstances look bleak, uh, he's actually going to be the one, the son. This deliverer is going to come through your line. Adam can't believe, Abraham can't believe it. Uh, it happens. And then what happens is through that family line, as Abraham's children are birthed and, and rebirthed, what you have is uh, this people of God that end up in uh, oppressive mistreatment by the Egyptians. And so God wants a mediator. God wants someone to go and deliver his people. He wants someone to speak for him on their behalf. And he picks Moses. It's amazing, actually, if you continue to see just how God loves to use that which is week. He goes in Exodus 4 to Moses. He says, hey, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And he goes, no, I have a speech problem, right? I, I, I stutter. I can't, I can't talk. Right? He goes, I know. I'll be your mouth for you. Um, he continues to demonstrate, right? Even when he came to Abraham and he says, hey, I'm going to use your line. I'm not going to use it because you're awesome. I'm going to use it because you're really weak and you're the most small ghetto tribe out there. So he, he continues to show that I'm going to flex my glory, not through your strength, but through your weakness. So I'm more glorified. A profound view of God that we see 
see in the Bible. And so uh, here we have him coming, and he's going to speak for God. And this is what God then comes to Moses and tells him this. Now, um, you have to remember here that, that when, when Abram heads into the promised land, they're like 66, family is 66, and then 400 years pass, and they're over a couple million, all right, over the course of 400 years. So um, here's what we're going to see in Exodus 6, where, G, where, where God tells Moses, this is what I want to do for my people. He says, uh, Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, that's promise, right, I'm going to make you mine, I'm coming after you, I'm pursuing you, and I will be your God. These aren't suggestions, This is, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to rule over your heart in gladness. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I promised to give Abraham. So he's reminding me of the promise that he gave Abraham. I'm still going to give that land to you. That promise is still going to happen. He reiterates it to Isaac and Jacob. That's why he includes that here. And I will give it to you for a possession. Okay, so so God reminds the people of God that, hey, I'm a God that keeps my promise. I'm a God that's still going to do what I said I would do to Abraham, right, your great-great-grandfather, and and all of us, ultimately, lineage goes all the way back to him. And so he says, hey, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm I'm faithful to that. I'm trustworthy to to that. I'm loyal to that. I'm dependable to that. And as he shows that he speaks, I want you to notice in fatherly language, um, it's really important to see the father heart of God and the way that God speaks to his people. He says over and over and over, I will be your God. You will be my possession. This is, this is love. This is devotion. Now, if, if you're a father and a, and a good father and you have children, uh, you know what this is like, right? I mean, you pursue your children. I think of Jackson, how um, when he sins, I don't ignore his sin, but in love, I discipline him out of delight because I want him to see the pathway to life. I want him to see how good God is. I want him to see how, how right commands are, not because that makes you something before God, but because God knows better than you, uh, and he's designed you to operate for, for the flourishing of your soul in a certain way, and so I want him to, to run in that, but even when he sins, I'm devoted to him, right? Uh, I pursue him. I want to teach him. I want to have him. Um, that, that's the heart of God that you'll see throughout the scriptures, and even in these uh, promises, um, that God deals with us but pursues us and loves us, right? We want, he wants to be connected with us. He wants to be affectionate with us. Um, he wants us to feel all the things that a good father would give to his own children and his family. And so he tells this to his people, right? And you can even hear him tell that to us as his uh, church-age children. And, and what happens is God then eventually, after this statement, after this promise, he goes in, delivers his people. He crushes Pharaoh and all his army in the Red Sea. They get to the other side. He gives them food from heaven. He gives them water from a rock. They continue to grumble. Uh, lots of different things happen. It takes them three months before they arrive at Mount Sinai, right, as a, as a people, where God will speak again to confirm his promise made to Abraham. Look at what he says. Flip over to Exodus 19. God's going to show them something. I didn't free you for freedom's sake. I freed you to worship me, okay? So I didn't, I didn't just deliver you out of slavery just so, hey, life is better. Cool, now we can just sit and enjoy this, this land, the food from heaven, everything else. I, I freed you. I literally crushed your opponents, crushed your enemies, not so that you'd simply be free, but so that you would worship me more fully. Look at what he says in Exodus 19. He says, now therefore, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's his promise, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So 
Moses is the mediator. God always grabs a mediator and says, hey, go speak to God on my behalf. Now, ultimately, we know, right, Jesus is our mediator. That's, that's the good news of Jesus, that, that he now is our, the one that speaks to God for us, that he's the one who makes a way for us. But, but here we see in the Old Testament, God uses people as mediators to, to talk to God and, and to then give a message to his people. And here he says, tell my people that I'm their God and that I love them like a father and I want to rescue them and my commands are to lead them to life. Tell them that. Encourage them in that. That the family destruction will be had if they do not follow my ways. That, that life itself, that your soul, your mind, your heart will, will decay not only from the original sin but further from disobeying me. Right? It's the same question that he asked Adam. Right? Is God trustworthy or not? Does God have the right way in front of you or not. And he lays this in front of him. And, but the people of God don't listen. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, if you grew up in church, you know uh, they continue to rebel. Uh, they continue to not listen. God continues to call Moses up the mountain to speak to him. Hey, go back down and speak to my people. Relay this message. Relay this message. Um, and God himself will now give the Ten Commandments. Now, um, even if you're not a churchgoer, you've heard these. Uh, and I don't even know your perspective on them. I don't even know what you believe about them. But, but let's look at the real meaning of why God gave this law to the people. Exodus 20, verse 1. This is what God says. It's a lot, but it's familiar. He says this in chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. He's just reminding them of who he is. I'm the faithful one, man. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Do you not forget me splitting the Red Sea? Now, isn't that amazing, right, how we can watch God be so faithful to us and then in an instance grow in such impatience with him, yet we love his patience with us? Right? And, and we're like, well, where were you? I parted the Red Sea. Right? He's like, I, I got you out of oppressive slavery. I have over 400 years. I delivered you from an army, from a pharaoh who was godless. I put you at a place where I fed you from heaven. I gave you water from rocks. I cared for you as a good father, and yet you still grumble and complain. Listen, there will always be an aspect or a reason you feel like you have for whining towards God. And he's going to continue to show you that you don't have reason. He's going to continue to remind you of how he's been faithful despite you. Primarily in the work of his son Jesus, right? That's where we see it most prominently and gloriously. But here we see that he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Don't forget this, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Why would you want another god? No other gods can part the Red Sea. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is of the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you can rebel. We were once his enemies. He makes us his friends. We were his creation. He makes us his children. He does that not when you were desiring him or seeking after him. In our hiding like Adam, he came after us. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord of your God in vain, for the Lord will hold, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days labor, do all your work. On the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shouldn't do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. That's how culture was set up. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. God didn't need rest. He gave it as a model for us to rest. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. 
You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, donkey, hey, in case I forgot anything, or his toad, okay, like just and nothing. You cannot covet anything. This is going to show how wicked we really are. We go after silly things, okay? He, he gives you basically the, the junk drawer for you to have all this stuff in or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, now, now here, this is not a sermon on the Ten Commandments. So we would sit here and break everyone down and talk about all of them. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the, see the big picture 30,000 feet above the plane. Here's what happens. Moses comes down with these two large tablets and reiterates to the people God's law, God's command, God's design for them to find the path of life, right? To, to find human flourishing as a way to, to live well with God. And in short, every command you're reading is really a juxtaposition against all the other gods of their day. Now, they just were pulled out of slavery where they saw the pharaohs of their day. So he's going to show you I'm a much better God than the pharaohs. That's what you're going to see here. That's, that's the difference here. That's the, that's the change here that you're going to see in the differences as to how he lines this up. So, so all of this is to show you, these commands are to show you how God intended you to live, not the gods of this world intend you to live, how it leads to flourishing, not only flourishing, but actually to show you that you need someone who can keep them because you can't keep them, so you live in rhythm and grace, okay? So that's why he gave us this law. That's why he gave us these commands, right? Ultimately, to point outside of itself to show you that there's someone coming who could keep them who couldn't. And so they symbolize not acting as God, but coming under and trusting God. Now, the pharaohs acted as God, right? So you could just go down this list, have no other gods before me. Okay, well, don't try to be God like Pharaoh and control and manipulate other people. Come under me because I'm good and I'm for the joy of your soul. Um, He'll continue to go, don't make other gods. Don't make graven images, right? Don't use God's authority to manipulate others like the pharaohs of this world like you saw. They manipulated and oppressed people and used their power for their gain, right? We don't use our authority and our power for us. We use it for God. We become servants in the kingdom of God. We desire to see people liberated from oppression. Keep the Sabbath day, right? You don't make everyone else work like the pharaohs of the day and oppress everybody and beat them and sit on your butt for seven days a week. No, you work hard and then you rest well. All of God's people are servants. We're not gods. We're not pharaohs. You can keep going down the list. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery, right? The pharaohs of the day, they live for their own lusts, loves, and desires. And they did whatever it took to accomplish those means. They slept with whoever they wanted. No one's an authority over us. Mom, dad, no, we're God. We are Pharaoh. We do what we want. They rebelled against authority, and God is showing the kingdom of God has a totally different way of living. Where we love coming under God because he loves us as his children. He's like a father to his kids, always looking to protect us and lead us into life. So he gives these commands and contrasts them with what they knew in slavery for over 400 years. He's like, no, no, I'm not a God who functions and acts like Pharaoh, and neither should you. God's kingdom is where the powerful become servants not to use to exploit others. You can just keep going down the list. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Don't exploit others. Don't use it for selfish gain. You've been given all that you have by God for God. Not for you, not to terminate in you, not so that ultimately you have things that you can enjoy solely for you, but for the good of others and the glory of God. 
So he gives all of these commands. God gives them this law, and here's what happens. They continue to rebel. They continue to create idols. And you see the humanity of Moses, right? God will tell Moses, hey, go make sacrifices. Moses makes sacrifices, come down, takes blood, starts throwing blood on people. Okay, that, that's weird, right? Not a, not a good thing to do, but he's trying to show that your sin is gross, your sin is wicked, it, it, it blasphemes God, and if you're not careful, your blood, because of your sin, will be spilt just like the blood of these animals, and you need a covering for it just like Adam needs a covering. And, and then what happens in his rage, he's not patient like God, he's frustrated. He breaks the stone tablets, showing that God's people cannot keep their commands. You've broken his law over and over and over and over. And in anger, he sins. Sons of Levi, I think they slaughter like 3,000. God sends a plague, bad day for the people of God. Now, here's the question, though, in all this. Um, okay, God brings this law down. The people of God are like, are we under this thing? Is faith, is righteousness, is salvation still given like Abraham? Like, or, or is it still under grace? Or is there like kind of a new way now? Like, do we now obey these things and keep these commandments? And that's how we enter into heaven. That's how we're saved by God. That's how we're forgiven of sin. I mean, that, that's the question. How does this thing happen? Is it still through Adam's seed in Genesis 3? Is there still a deliverer who's going to come and do the very thing that we can't do to give us righteousness and forgive us our sin and be the substitute in our place for our sin outside of ourselves, Jesus Christ? Is that still going to happen? And in Exodus 34, God shows them and reminds them by, for the first time in the Bible, announcing who he is in his character and nature. And it's amazing what he says. And he shows here that the basis of his promise is still on grace. And he tells Moses to make two new stone tablets. Look at what he says in Exodus 34. And this is profound because I don't know where you land in your heart. I don't know what you would expect God to say is the first time he declares who he is and his character. You might say vengeful, wrathful, angry, can't wait to punish and destroy and annihilate humanity. You know what the God of the Bible says? He says, I'm merciful. It's the first thing he says. It says, I'm merciful. The Lord, Lord said, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? He still upholds his holiness and justice. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and of the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And I love Moses' response. Moses hears just the character of God and worships. I mean, we talk about all the time how we, we fundamentally worship God because that he exists in infinite perfections, that there's none like him, there's none besides him, there's none above him, right? He is supreme, innumerable, infinite, and in all that he is in his existence. We talked about this in the first identity of the gospel, right? That it all starts with God and his character and who he is by his very nature. And God shows us here that when he just starts to roll out his heart, Moses can't help but worship him for it. Now, the Lord says, a merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, iniquity, transgressions, and sin. It's so important you see that. He gives three categories in the Hebrew language to talk about sin. You want to know why? He's showing there's no categories of unforgivable sin. 
Like, let me cover it all. Okay, if you have iniquity, if you have transgression, if you have sin, he's trying to stock up the drawers for you as if you try to find a sin that he can't forgive, what he's not merciful and gracious towards, you're not gonna find it under heaven. He forgives every single type of sin, right? No one can escape that. No one has secret shame or stuff they've done in the baggage of their life that the cross of Jesus Christ does not cover in full and pay the bill for, okay? So that's good news for us. It's good news that he covers Every type of sin, it says, hey, this is what you're forgiven in by me. Every type of sin, every category, every degree. He continues to show you how many there are. He piles it up. Now, um, see, I know there's probably a great divide in this room. And I don't mean this side believes one thing, this side believes that thing, but, but all around the room. Some of us just have so much trouble believing God could possibly forgive you for anything, and you think that he just takes such delight in slamming the gavel on you that he loves to punish you. And so you run from him. You don't lean into him. Others of you think his grace is a a pushover, that his holiness is subpar, and that I just say a chant, and then I'm somehow grafted into the kingdom, and then I just live like hell to avoid hell, which doesn't make any sense, right? So so, so we got two. So here's what God is, is saying to us through this, is some of us need to see the magnitude of God's mercy towards you and others of you need to see the magnitude of your need for that mercy towards you, okay? And I don't know where you fall there, but you need to hear that this God is ferociously holy and good in all that he does, but he also cannot acquit the guilty without a sacrifice, which he's going to show eventually is Jesus Christ. So the question is, but how, God, how will you show mercy? How will you be gracious? How will you show love to thousands and still not acquit the guilty? Like, like how will you still not leave the guilty unpunished? How will that happen, Jesus? And he's going to lay the guilt of everyone from the sin of Adam to the end of the age on the innocent Jesus Christ. And he's going to gladly, willingly accept that and walk in that for the glory of the Father. Take all of our debt that accrued over time from eternity past into our future. And he will crush it through the authority of himself, right? Satan, sin, and death, reconciling us to God, giving us his spirit, giving us new life, offering us a new possessed home, right? An inheritance a promised land that's coming, right? This Jesus will do this. This is amazing good news for us. So everything that was freely given under Moses is purchased by Jesus alone. He's telling you that. That's what he's trying to get his heart, your heart to understand in this. There is no promise to Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, David, anything else you'll hear without the coming of Jesus. You have no guarantee of anything happening for you positive in the spiritual realm if Jesus doesn't come Christmas morning. And that's what he's trying to get you towards. That's why we want to look at Advent. That's why we want to center our hearts that Christmas morning is more than just something that exists for a couple hours to make us happy, but exists long after the lights are taken down and the trees put away and the family heads home. You've got a gift that you continue to unwrap each hour. Righteousness purchased for me. I walk in gladness today, not because I'm perfect, but because I have a perfection that went before me. I have a lot of work to do as a sinner to get to God, and God did all the work for me as a sinner to get me to himself in Jesus. That's really, really good news. Christmas morning is that reminder for us. So what's the point of the law then? Why the law? That's a lot of people ask. Why the commandments? Do I still have to obey it? Right? We're always looking for a way out, loopholes licentious, legalistic, put lots of names on these categories. Here's what Galatians 3 says. If you want to flip to your New Testament now, Paul's going to discuss. Now, in case you have been here the last three weeks, uh, you've seen something consistent. 
Um, every single promise revealed to be kept is in Galatians 3. Um, so if you want a really great place to go to see promises kept, go to Galatians 3. Uh, it's amazing. He, he talks about in Galatians 3 how Jesus is the promised Adam, Jesus is the promised Abraham, and how Jesus is the promised Moses. Just in one chapter, let alone the whole New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. Pick it up in verse 17. Here's what we read. Paul's going to help us understand what the purpose of this law was, what the purpose of the Ten Commandments were. This is what I mean, he says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, that's after the promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make a promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. In other words, if there's a new way to get into heaven now, it's no longer through the promise. Abraham believed God. He was given righteousness. If that's not how it happens anymore, is this some new way now? Then it doesn't rely on a promise God made. It relies on some new covenant or some, not new covenant, new like establishment that God has made. So he's showing this is not how it happens. It doesn't make it void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Um, it's just the whole idea of promise. I mean, God... God wants you to be secure in him. Did you realize that? Like he, like, he does not enjoy seeing his kids strung out, always questioning and wondering if he's trustworthy. Like, that's not like his heart. Like, he's not like, hey, I'm going to have a bunch of different cups and just try to find the right one that has the ball in it. Like, that's not, he's not playing games with you. He wants to give you every reason you can totally, utterly trust him. And that's why even so much of us, right, throughout our lives, we think the whole goal of God is us proving our love to him, that we, we exist to show and demonstrate through our deeds, through our works, through our merits, through our love, through our social justice, through our humanitarian works, that we somehow really love you. And God really wants you to be totally floored your whole life at how much he loves you and pursues you despite you. Like, that's really what he wants you to see. Not spend your whole life proving your love to him, but spend your whole life being overwhelmed by his great steadfast love towards you. Does that, does that categorize your heart? Because that's what God's showing is it's all about this promise. Paul, Paul says God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham 400 years, 430 years before this came, and it says that he was given the righteousness of God. Right? It was credited to him. Genesis 15, 6. If you were here, we spent a lot of time in that. He says, so you think that now, oh, here it is, 430 years later, here's Moses, Ten Commandments, comes down Mount Sinai. This is now some new entrance, some new way? Not at all. It still depends on the promise that God made. It still depends on what God had said. Why was God going to rescue sinners from Satan, sin, and death? Because he promised. Not because you were good. Not because you had achievements. Not because you were smart. Not because your IQ because of Jesus. The law came 430 years later. He's going, that's not the purpose. So why the law then, Paul? He goes, well, thanks for asking. Verse 19. Why then the law? <laughs> it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul goes, Okay, so why the law? Because I know you're continuing to ask that question. Even though it depends on the promise, and I explained to you how God keeps his promise and he's trustworthy because God wants us to see how our rebellion leads to destruction. He wants you to realize how sinful you really are. 
He's using it as a, as a magnifying glass. He's using it as a, the most accurate mirror that exists. Because listen, we can spend our whole lives just comparing ourselves to other people. They don't sit on the throne. <laughs> like like you, you compare yourself to, you can find someone any day of the week who has sinned more than you, right? I mean, now listen, some of you guys, it, it's troubling on the other way because you're looking at your neighbor who's not a Christian and he sins less than you. So there's got to be some equal ground. There's got to be a place we can land and say, righteousness is given outside of myself, yet it compels me to a righteous life. I don't abuse grace, but I walk in the holiness as God is making me holy through the work of his son alone. And we see, as he explains here, the whole point was to show us how sinful we are. Romans 7, he says this, verse 7, look on the screen. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So the sin's not bad. The sin's not a, a negative thing. He says, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. He goes, I wouldn't have known that I was so off track. I wouldn't have known that I was so skewed from God's plan that I was not holy, would never be as holy as God. I would not see that my treason against the king of the universe was so bad. I would not see that my heart longs to disobey. I would not see that I'm bent with the disposition to choose outside God's ideal every single day and morning and minute and second I walk. I would not see that if it was not laid in front of me. It's like those signs you drive by that show your speed limits like thrown in your face. I'm going 75 and a 25, right? Like it's just thrown in your face. You drive by and you have to see it. It it exposes, it shows you how you're off track. It shows you how you've fallen short. It shows you how we've belittled the name and renown of God. And that's what Paul says here. He says, this is what Paul does. I wouldn't have even known what sin was until I started reading the law. And I was like, man, God's grieved by that? Wait, that's that's not actually the directive of the cosmic created universe? Wait, that's not actually how God has wired me and made me to live and function? You mean it's actually a good thing to come under this God and not be my own God? Wait, you mean I'm supposed to worship the one who made all of this and not worship the stuff that he's made? Wait, you mean stuff isn't supposed to own me? I'm supposed to own it and use it and steward it? It it just starts to reveal to you, right? Right? how you're off track, how none of us, we've all fallen short, Romans 3, from the glory of God. It reveals that. Look at what he says in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, make you new, regenerate you, declare you righteous, there's no law that's been given that can do that. He said, but if it could, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if God's plan from the beginning was, hey, just stock up your good works and before on the day of judgment, just profess how awesome you are and that's how it was done, then that's how it would be. That ain't how it's going to be. You need a champion to stand for you in your place. And Jesus is going to stand for those who are his as their champion in their place and say, he's mine, she's mine, he's mine, she's mine. Not because they were awesome, because they were horrible and I'm awesome and their unrighteousness was damning them, and my righteousness saved them. That's what he's going to say. That's what he's going to do for us at the end of all things. So here he shows us this, right? But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe faith. Now, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So Paul goes, the law, the the commandments, they not only show you how sinful you are, they show you how totally helpless you are. 
Like they do both of those things, and both of those things are important. But you can see how sinful you are and then try to some way achieve and cover up and make yourself more, more holy and more moral. It goes, no, but it shows you too, you're totally helpless. There's no law you can keep that ultimately does what the promise does for you by faith. That's what he's showing us in Galatians 3. This is, this is huge. This is profound. He goes, and the whole world is a prisoner in the law. So whether you like it or not, you're imprisoned by this. Like, like, listen, you don't choose what the speed limit is when you head out here and get on Route 17. Like, you're under that. Like, that's the speed limit. The authorities have placed that. You don't get to say, man, eh, I want it 55. Eh, I want it 95. I, you don't get a say in that, right? It's, it's set. It's fixed. In the same way, you have no, whether you like it or not, you're under this law. It's written on your hearts, Romans 2 will say. That it, it shows us morality. It shows the ways that we are off. The law imprisoned all of us, he says, just like the people of Israel. Why? Because we're all liars, just like them. We all commit adultery. We all go after lusts and loves that are not God. We all chase other things. We all make graven images for ourselves and worship those things and long for those things more than God. We all do all of these things. We'll claim we don't. We'll claim our hearts are clean. We'll claim that we're pure and that we're holy. And here's the thing. No matter how hard you try, you fall short. The imprisonment, he says you're held captive by it. You can't not sin. Try it. The rest of today. Try it the next two hours. Just try it the next hour, right? You're going to feel something towards me, towards somebody else, uh, towards someone out in the hallway. I don't like these colors, really stupid lights. I mean, you, you've got something where you're going to feel something that is aggressive, that is, hey, you're going to have some reason today, I promise, where sin will continue to come out of you and be in you and permeate your very being. <laughs> no one can claim to be that. And so he's showing us here that we are held captive by it. The futility of trying to be good enough is exhausting. Listen, it's an exhausting, exhausting road to be super religious and not saved. So exhausting. Who wants that? I mean, and some of you are just held captive by that. You are so religiously lost. You have just done thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, and you are so exhausted, which is why it's benchmarks of your spiritual life. Not life, not joy, not grace, not mercy, not meekness. It's aggression, frustration, and you lack intimacy and worship, and you live in fear. And, and he's showing us that's not the purpose. We live in joy to God because he's freed us from our imprisonment and our captivity. He's come and let us out of our prison cell through the purchasing work of Jesus Christ. And so he shows us this law shows how sinful we are and how helpless we are. Now that sounds like bad news. That's awesome news. I mean, listen, if you're imprisoned by something, if you're locked up, don't you want the very one that has the key? I mean, don't you want someone to come by and release you from your imprisonment? That's why it already points us to that we need a Savior who will release us from this captivity, release us from this bondage, release us from this sin. Verse 24, he answers it here. We'll land the plane with this. So then the law was our guardian. In other words, tutor. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Not by the law, not by works, not by what you do, but now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. So Paul says, finally, and most importantly, yes, this law is a good thing. It leads to life. You should follow it. You should walk in it. But ultimately, it was to point outside of you to show you that you couldn't keep it and needed somebody who could. 
It was a guardian to lead you to Jesus Christ, to point you to Jesus Christ so that by faith you could see he's the one that's gonna totally fulfill this law for me. He's gonna uphold every last commandment and some, glorify the Father and pay all my debt in full and gift me his righteousness, not just forgive all my sin. To put me in a place where God could possibly declare me okay before him. That's what we see. See, the point of the law was to prepare us for the way was to prepare us for Christ. So everyone realizing their guilt, their shame, their brokenness is all sitting going, in my fracture, I need someone, I need someone, I need someone. That was all the Old Testament sacrifices and altars, and that was the temple, that was the tabernacle. That was the point of everything. That was the point of the promise to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, you're gonna hear next week, to David, to point you to the one who would come and do everything that you could not do for you. It's the best news in the universe. So this whole idea that we don't have to be under the law anymore, um, is, that a, is that a bad thing? How do we view the law? Now, some of you guys are gonna lose your minds because I'm about to do an object lesson, all right? All right, so, and I've never done that before. So listen, but I'm doing it because I thought of it this week, okay? Some of you guys just thought this is the most disgusting ladder. Why is it over there, right? We need to do stuff with excellence. Well, not today. So here's, here's how so many people view the law. That's how you view it. It's just a ladder, right? Now, here's what's crazy. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, right, you, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a terrifying statement without Jesus. Man, those guys are walking around blindfolded. Did you do a study of the Pharisees? They were nuts thinking they could not sin. So, so most of us, um, the religious, um, they use the law as a ladder. I would even argue the world. And so this is their cards. This is the way that they earn or work their way to God. They think this is why. So, so and it's like a scorecard, right? So uh, I didn't cuss, right, today, right? So I get one point, almost fell. It would have been awesome. First object lesson, flat on my face. Merry December. Um, totally, totally. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, law. So... So this is, this is what your refuge is in. This is where your stability is. This is where your sturdiness is, right? And then maybe you say, man, I, uh, I didn't drink. I didn't, get, I didn't get wasted this week. So cool, man. I get another point, right? And you're just, meanwhile, just like your scorecard's awesome. You're looking down at everybody else. These minions, man, they just don't do any, nearly look at me, man. I'm so much closer to God. I'm increasing my holiness. And then, man, I haven't committed adultery. But that's, that's a touchdown, an extra point, seven points. So you go, you go up and you, you can't go anymore. Don't worry, I'm fine. You go, you go all the way up. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's what's amazing. You keep trying to work your way up. Here's what's amazing. Jesus comes. Did you know that he changes the entire system, flips it on its head, and it's no longer about external striving but internal realities? So, so it's not all about the, the, these achievements, this way that you work your way up, these ways that you, you kind of please God through what you do. He basically says, hold on, hold on. You heard in the law it said that you weren't to murder, but you have anger in your heart, right? He takes that external reality and makes it internal. He says, oh, you heard not, don't commit adultery, right? You haven't officially cheated on your spouse, but you lust after others. So the win is not avoiding an affair. The win is not being held captive to lust outside of the satisfying nature of Jesus. Right. Like that, that's so, so he just, I love it. He takes the whole system, flips it on his head, reveals that it's no longer this external striving, this internal reality, where you get the Holy Spirit. The law is written on your heart now. So now these things are birthed from within you and coming out of you. So here is how you have to see the law. The law is never to be seen as a ladder but train tracks, right? This is, 
This is it, man. It just keeps you on track. It was never meant for you to, it was your guardian. It was your, your tutor, right? You don't have to clap. It's, it's cool. Like, like this, is, this is how you get there. So you're literally know when you're off, you know, and when you do fall off, it points you and leads you to the only one who could possibly fulfill the law for you. Think this is stupid. All you guys are climbing the ladder, all right? So I can laugh at you all day long if you want. This is, this is how we see it. This is how we move. This is how we live. And this is why the law is not void. It's not that you don't follow it anymore. He says that it's like David said, that the law is like honey on his lips, that he loves God's law. So it's not, oh, great, it's a railroad tracks now ladder. I don't even have to worry about it or obey it. No, it actually continues to keep you on the path to life so that when, you, when God says, don't have any other gods that aren't me, you say, how could I possibly have another God? I mean, every other God at every system of belief has to be appeased by a sacrifice. And you appeased yourself of a sacrifice of yourself to purchase me to yourself. That's amazing, right? Don't, don't, don't you know, take my name in vain. That's not a lot. I've said this before, cussing, it means don't be trite about me. How can you be trite about the one who rescued you and saved you from sin? Um, all these don't do do's, no, no, I do and don't do to make you visible and, and, and declare your glory and renown. And, and Jesus says, so they might glorify my Father in heaven. Uh, it's amazing the change that happens when you, you shift from I'm trying to work my way and earn my way and be religiously lost to I am so thankful this constantly points me to my need, my great need, which is Jesus Christ, and I can't do it on my own, so you constantly need to see it as the pathway to life. Now, my question for you is this. If you're honest about yourself, which side do you fall into? I mean, when, you, when, you even, when you're even given a command of God, where's the place that your heart leans is it that the law can boost you and make much of you? Is it so it can make much of Jesus and remind you over and over and over this is the pathway to life? And even when I fall off track, it points me to the one who did it for me. This is, these are good things, good things. And this is why, guys, the promised Christmas morning is that Jesus is the better and truer Moses, right? I mean, Jesus is the one who liberates us from the pharaohs in our hearts, right? Satan, sin, and death. The gods that want to rule that aren't him, the gods that want to mandate and tell us what is right and wrong and where we want to make much of ourselves, he liberates us from that. He's the one who mediates a new covenant, right? Moses was the mediator. Jesus steps in and mediates a perfect covenant where he himself is the covenant. And he speaks to God for us on our behalf. He's the one. Matthew, Jesus says, I fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to put it away. I came to fulfill it. I came to obey it to its every last dot and tittle. He says, that's profound. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our reality. And he says, I came so that the law might not be written on stone tablets, but the law might be written on the heart of your flesh. It might be an internal reality that is coming forth out of your life when you're made new in this Jesus Christ. So it's not this external law you abide in and that you believe and that you obey. It's something that actually becomes who you are because you're made new. So two questions. Do you feel imprisoned by sin? Do you feel like you're held captive to sin? Listen, when, when all is said and done, the only hope you and I have for the things that haunt us, because for, for some of you, the law might terrify you. And for the Christian, it no longer terrifies, it tastes sweet. But for some of you, it might terrify you. And the only way out of that is glad submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. Listen, you have no hope at all for having victory over any sin in your life without true surrender to Jesus Christ. 
That's why some of us are exhausted trying to protect a persona that's not you. Because freedom's not in, hey, I want to cover myself up and look pretty around everybody else. It's just letting God and others see the ugliness and know that God loves you still in that state. I mean, that's, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the resurrection. That's the good news of his shed blood to show us that it is awful. It is wicked. It is heinous. But religion says, hey, hide myself. Do some things to look better on the outside. The gospel says, hey, unveil yourself. Look to the one who did it for you and let righteousness be seen and let God be glorified because he loves to save sinners like us. It's a beautiful reality and change that happens in the two different messages that culture will paint and that the Bible will paint. And listen, some of you are exhausted because you have been spending your entire life just trying to be somebody and protect a persona and follow commands and follow laws. And that is why your whole life is exhausting. And it cultivates fear and distance from God. It does not drive you into intimacy and worship. So God wants to free you from the law. He wants to free you from your captivity and your imprisonment. And that's why I love that God's promise towards us, all of his promises in Christ, are not at all about our goodness, but his greatness. Every bit of his promises are not to show our greatness, not to say, man, look at what we've done, look at what we've achieved, look at how we've listened and obeyed. They're all to show, look how great God is that he pursues, that he goes after, that in devoted love, like a father to his children, he continues to come after, even the wanderer who strays, that he loves grabbing those on the fray and loves to use them as some of his brightest lights. Let's ask God for help to understand that. God, would you give us instruction right now through your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to understand what we need to understand? Would you help us to walk in greater life where we need to walk in life? Would you help us to forgive where we need to forgive? Would you help us to see your patience as it really is that we might be patient? God, we see the depth of our wandering from you and the extent of your Exodus 34 love towards every bit of iniquity, transgression, and sin. And how you satisfy that in full through Jesus Christ. God, would you give some this morning freedom in Jesus? That those sins that haunt them, that they realize they can absolutely be put to death, that there is no shame that Christ cannot cover and forgive, and that there is absolutely no sin that the cross of Jesus Christ cannot give full victory over. And God, for some it might be a walk, it might be a step, it might be a jump. For some, it's God, continue to keep me. Continue to remind me of the goodness of your commands. For that reveals the true heart of faith. Maybe you're in this room and, and you love just thinking that, that his grace, his fulfillment of the law gives you license to sin. And I'm telling you, you might not be made new. You might not be a Christian. If you believe that you were saved so you could just continue to live in the exact same state and place that God delivered you from you to bring you to himself to walk in newness of life. It's a full gospel, a full story, a full message. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he fulfills the law for us. Thank you that he is our righteousness. Thank you that he is the one who stands as the mediator for us before you, a holy God. God, thank you that sinners can be forgiven of sin because of Jesus. And thank you that the law helps us to see that. Would you help us to assess ourselves honestly with integrity so that we might walk in richer life with you and deeper joy for the good of our souls and glory of your name.
And God, as we observe this supper, would you help us to remember that this broken body, shed blood alone is what purchases for us a righteous life. God, might that taste really good to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.